This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, everybody. I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. And if you've been following the series this summer, you know that uh, we're putting out a string of podcasts that aren't strictly speaking presentations of debates, but rather part of a series that we call Discourse Disruptors. Uh, it's an interview series that we're doing where I talk with people who are part of and also shaping the way that we're all talking to each other today. And today with me in the studio is Simon Johnson. Simon is a top economist who is really taking a new look at the way we think and talk about jobs and the economy in modern America. He has some policy prescriptions, but what we really want to talk with Simon about is his analysis of the way in which we've ended up not talking to each other because of certain decisions made about investments in science uh, by the governments and even by private industries and how science relates to that. So, Simon, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're a professor at MIT. You were the chief economist at the International Monetary Fund. You also have uh, some history with us at Intelligence Squared US. You've debated with us um, three times, I think. I think two debates and one unresolved. One which, unresolved, which yeah. yeah. But you've been on the stage with us three That's times, right. which is getting close to the record. I think, I think we have some four or five timers, but you're certainly in the top. So it's great to have you um, in this format with us as well. And as I mentioned, you've come out with a new book with a very intriguing title, Jumpstarting America, How Breakthrough Science Can Revive Economic Growth and the American Dream. You co-wrote that with John Gruber. Um, first of all, tell us, to give credit where it's due, who John is? Oh, so John is an economist at MIT. He's in the Department of Economics, and, and he's uh, one, one of the country's leading experts on public finance, so how the government finance and, and finance and runs itself. And his particular specialty, which is particularly well-known, is, of course, healthcare, because he was one of the key architects of what was originally Romney Care in Massachusetts and what became Obamacare uh, for the country as a so, whole. So we'll see a lot of his thinking in the book. But I also just want to ask you to share with the audience, uh, I can give the title, you're an economist at MIT and you're with the IMF, but I really want to know, who are you? Um, in, in the sense of, first of all, uh, you have a little bit of, uh, of an accent, which tells me that uh, you may have come from a different place. But I think you're also of this place, the United States, this country that you're writing about so deeply. So tell us just a little bit about your background. Sure. I, I'm from the north of England, from, from Sheffield, uh, actually, which is a big industrial area that's had its ups and downs. I came to the United States uh, in my early 20s to get a PhD, actually, at MIT. Mm. Um, and um, I stayed on. And the opportunities and, and, and the... Um, Possibilities in America have always always fascinated. Is this me. home now for you? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I became a citizen. I, I like to tell my audiences, some of whom express skepticism, <laughs> given my accent, <laughs> about my legitimacy speaking about the United States. I like to say I, I worked long and hard to become an American citizen, and and I did very well on the citizenship test. So here we go. <laughs> it's actually not that hard a test anymore, is it? Right. Let's let's be <laughs> let's be honest about it. Um, and uh, the other thing I wanted to bring out is that the book that you've written is not strictly speaking. You're an economist, but this book goes way beyond what economists normally write about. You're a little bit outside your normal area. Well, I, I would say we, we try to go deeply and we try to understand the history behind the, the economic decisions that were made in the past and how those have created long-lasting effects and how that might shape how we think about what's 
economically a good idea and what's politically feasible mm-hmm. today. So I, I rather think this is sort of the whole package of economics. But you're right, it, the style is perhaps a, a little bit more like economists used to write some decades ago, more than modern, some of modern economics. I want to recommend the book. I mean, as a, as a reader and as a layperson in the field of economics myself, that I, I uh, found it very, very readable, very accessible. And uh, and it's it's a pleasure to try to, for somebody like me to try to take in fields of economics through something that's written in such a narrative fashion. So thank you for that and congratulations. And you, you, um, you posited an idea in the book, many ideas, but one of them that I want to draw out in particular uh, at the beginning, and we'll circle back to it, is you you look across the nation and you actually do write for some pages about the state of discourse in the United States. You talk about um, the cities that are the have and the have-nots. You talk about why some people would have voted for Donald Trump and some people would have voted for Hillary Clinton based on where they live, what their experiences have been, their aspirations. And you allude pretty directly to the fact that um, there's we don't necessarily uh, know any longer how to talk to each other and there's even a tendency to be skeptical and suspicious of each other and even to demonize each other. And you say that this has a lot to do with or can be addressed by the federal government's commitment to basic scientific research and development. Okay, that's an oversimplification, but I think it's an accurate oversimplification and that gets to something in the book. Is fair enough? Yes, absolutely. I think the missing piece in there, or just to draw out one piece, is that that we among among the dimensions of our pol- modern polarization is a geographic polarization. Mm-hmm. We have some mega cities on the on the west coast and the east coast that have done very well, where technology is developed, where people have a lot of creative jobs and, and, and wages and, and living standards are, are relatively robust. And there are other parts of the country. Uh, sometimes people talk about rural America. I think it's more like rural and small town America mm-hmm. that is at least felt left out of this tech-led boom. And many of these places have actually been very hard hit, for example, by globalization. They lost their manufacturing jobs. Nothing has come to replace it. They could move, perhaps, but moving a long way into places that are quite hard to break into, where the housing costs are very high, like Silicon Valley. And and so there's, there's, this is a, an additional dimension about which, uh, along which people, you know, differ, and, and it, it feeds into some of our disagreements. It's not that the, the the fundamental cause of our polarization is clearly not science. What's right. happened to science? But we do think science is, is a lever that can be pulled. So if you invest more in science, invest more in research and development, which is a good way to boost growth, good way to boost productivity growth, we suggest that you should spread that around the country. Don't just force more resources into, for example, Cambridge, Massachusetts, where, where MIT is. It's already very expensive. It's already very crowded. A lot of congestion. Real estate costs are pretty high. Look for other places that you can develop as tech hubs. And there's a lot of them spread around the country. At least 36 states have well, got Well, before them. you get there, because I, I want to get to those suggestions and recommendations and policy prescriptions, but the way that you lay out the story is you tell us how this could work, how this might work, and and why it could work. And you do this by going back to World War II. And you treat World War II as a huge turning point in the relationship between science, the federal government, and universities. So I want you to take us back there, which is also the beginning of your book, and tell us what changed in the 1940s. What had been the situation before that in relation to this triple relationship? And then what changed? Well, before 1940, the private sector, including the universities and the federal government, had a somewhat uneasy relationship when it came to the development of technology. The university professors wanted to be left to their own devices. The private sector wanted to get on and and, and build their own products. We had, you know, some some pretty good technologies, steel industry, telecommunications, uh, for example. AT&T was one of the leading companies in the world. The federal government was really in the backseat, did not have a leading role. 
In, in the spring of 1940, however, when the German armies demonstrated their strategic and technological superiority over the French and the British, and they swept across Western Europe, uh, leaders of the United States on, on both sides of the political aisle said, oh, you know, this is something different. This is a threat. Germany might seem like it's far away right now, but we see the development of aircraft engines and, and maybe other technology, rockets, were, were really in the imagination, but they could see that this technology was coming quickly. Geographic distance was going to close. And were the Germans doing something that we weren't doing in terms of um, technological development? Yes. The, the perception of the, of, of the politicians and, and uh, top U.S. scientists was that Germany was one of the leaders in terms of developing science and technology. And they, they had been pressing aggressively mm-hmm. for almost 10 years in terms of developing military applications. I don't think the Americans fully understood and knew the extent of the German rocket program, for example, mm-hmm. what became the V-1 um, bomb and then the V-2 rocket. But if they had known, that would only have reinforced this, this understanding. And how, how did innovation happen prior in the United States prior to World War II? Who, who was doing it? Most of, most of innovation, and there was a fair amount, was within the private sector, and it was to develop better products for profit, put them into the market. The federal government had had some role with regard to U.S. economic development, uh, for example, expanding the frontiers. Uh, the U.S. Geological Survey had always been at the forefront of exploration for, with regard to minerals, for example. And, of course, the U.S. had supported the, uh, such uh, big initiatives as the development of the Transcontinental Railroad. Mm-hmm. But mostly it was the private sector. Universities w- were good, but they weren't great. They weren't the best in the world. If you were a, a, a top up-and-coming scientist in the 1910s or 1920s, to complete your education, you should really go study in, in Britain or France or Germany. So then 1940 happens, the United States begins to understand this threat from Germany to some degree. What happens? So there was a realization in, in Washington and, and across the sort of scientific elite, many of whom were Republican, by the way, mm-hmm. along with the leadership of the country, which was obviously FDR, Democrat, and other um, the Democrats were controlling Congress. There was an idea that we should do something about this. And, th- and there were a, a number of months where they, you know, tried to get themselves organized. And they thought about the resources. Then in September, late August, September 1940, the British showed up. The British, of course, were under siege. The Battle of Britain was being waged at that moment. They had also been thinking about how to apply scientific advances to military technology for some years. And they'd got a couple of really good ideas, they thought, but they had no spare industrial capacity. So they brought them to the Americans and said, look, you can have this stuff if you'll do something with it that's useful, that'll help us in, in the near term. And the Americans looked at their technology, and you know, they had a wide array of potential applications, and they said, no, that's not interesting. No, with that we've got, oh, and then they saw, they saw this device called the cavity magnetron, which was a way to create um, potentially radar technology, much more powerful and much more versatile than anything existed before. The Americans, to their credit, said, we don't have that. That's amazing. We're going to scale that up. And, and that's what the Americans were good at, was developing the technology, building all the ancillary pieces, the partnership between the government, the university involved, which was it was led by MIT, but other universities contributed key personnel, and the private sector that built the technology. Within the year, within a year of, of, of getting their hands on the cavity magnetron, they had a technology that could be used and deployed. And by early 1942, it was tipping the balance of the war in the Atlantic fighting against German submarines. Mm -hmm. So it was an an amazing, remarkable story which convinced the Americans that there was more they could do with the same sort of combination of talents. For the sake of winning the war? Yes, immediately for the sake of winning war. And, of course, the Manhattan Project that developed under the atomic bomb came Mm -hmm. exactly out of this thinking, as did other 
forms of military technology. But by late 1944, early 1945, when many people were convinced America was going to win the war, the logical next thought was, okay, that was amazing and, and perhaps even a little bit surprising. What can we do for the peace? What can we do to save human lives, for example, what can we do? We'd now call this the pharmaceutical industry. What can we do to build up that pharmaceutical industry? And what are the other applications we can think of with regard to improving uh, living standards and generating good jobs for all those soldiers who are coming back from the war? So with this enormous unprecedented influx of federal money, if you'd visited uh, MIT in 1939 and visited in 1949, was it going to be a different experience? Yes, I think it was a much more intense place and it was a much more focused place and it was a place that was focused on the development of, of technology you could really use. Now, some universities had had some of that. Mm -hmm. MIT had always been a very practical engineering school. It's, it's actually a land-grant college, a private one, which is, which is unusual. It had always been focused on trying to find useful things for, for engineering and for manufacturing purposes. Most American universities were not like that. Most American universities changed their mind when they saw what could happen, what had happened at MIT, what happened at Caltech, what happened at Berkeley, and the way that physicists, in, in particular, could produce useful gadgets, as, as, as they were called mm -hmm. in, in that day. What could one do? The possibilities suddenly became enormous and, 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 and far-reaching. So you're, you're looking back to this period as a model when this partnership and this source of, of, of funding always convening in a particular way to produce outcomes that you're saying were beneficial, number one, to winning the war, but number two, to winning the peace and living the peace after the fact, which I'm asking, what, where did this put the scientist as a cultural personality in the United States? Well, initially, I mean, to talk about focus on the immediate post-war period, the scientist was at the top. If you look at uh, rankings, uh, assessments of, through the opinion polls of who's, who's got a good job, who do you admire in American society, it was um, yeah, Supreme Court justice and physicist. And even there was a great, there was a wonderful subcategory, nuclear physicist, although many people responded they didn't quite know what that meant. <laughs> so they were at the top of the, of the social pile for good reason. They're so highly admired. Yes, absolutely. And with good reason. Their achievements were, were simply stunning and, of course, somewhat incomprehensible also to, to most people. So there was an air of mystery. And was there also an air of invisibility that there was almost nothing that science couldn't address? Yes, there was a mystique about it. And, you know, frankly, I think this was also a little bit of a problem because there were promises made at this moment that were beyond the enthusiastic. They were promises that were basically irresponsible, such as nuclear power having the potential to generate what was literally said by top officials to be free electricity or electricity too cheap to meter was the phrase. Now, that clearly was far beyond what the technology was able to come up with. Where did the space race fit into this? So in, Getting in, to the moon. Yes, I think this is, a, this is a really key part of the story. So in, in 1958, um, the Soviets launched Sputnik, the first man-made satellite, and, and it was an enormous shock to the Americans. The Americans knew they were in a bit of a race with the Soviets to, to launch a satellite, but the Soviets had got ahead of them, and they put up a much bigger satellite than the Americans thought they'd be able to do. The Americans had a rocket ready to go as, as their response. They launched it quite quickly, and it blew up on the launch pad. Mm -hmm. So the media, of course, said, well, Russians had Sputnik, the Americans had Kaputnik, and then the Russians put a couple of dogs up into space who survived the, the launch. So they said, oh, now the Russians have got... Um, Mutnik. Mutnik, Mutnik yeah, exactly, yeah. right? So you can imagine the frenzy, the media frenzy, and, and of course, uh, the response on Capitol Hill. But frankly, in, in, in retrospect, um, 
the it was bipartisan. It was quite constructive. The idea was, okay, let's ramp up our commitment to this technology, the um, launching satellites and using satellites and building around satellites, what things that things that are useful for military purposes, but also for civilian. And in order to do that, let's develop talent. So the the national. Uh, Defense Education Act of, of, of 1959 was a was a response to the launch um, of Sputnik and and a really sensible way to bring to bring more and better math and physics education to more people and for the first time it, it really expressed a, a federal commitment to helping relatively poor people go to college and making college affordable for them. Uh, and what were the social benefits of this science besides? Uh, I'm not in any way meaning to belittle winning the war, obviously. I'm really talking about collateral impacts. Uh, often, you know, we grew up hearing that uh, the space program led to Tang and Velcro and thing, uh, Teflon and things like that. First of all, I don't know if that's apocryphal, but whether it is or not, was there a spillover effect of this research investment that the federal government was doing in these programs that benefited society outside of the narrow goal of, for example, getting to the moon? Yes, there were big benefits, although uh, Teflon, Velcro, um, and Tang, I think, are all apocryphal stories. All three. <laughs> yes, and we talk about that okay. in the book. But the modern computer industry absolutely comes from uh, the federal government's attempts to develop, actually, first uh, an a, um, anti-bomber air defense system. That was the origin of a lot of early work on computers. Other related pieces, including the space program, because vacuum tubes were very efficient for many purposes in the 1950s, but they didn't work well in rockets. Too fragile? Absolutely too mm -hmm. fragile, mm -hmm. and and therefore um, semiconductors were extremely appealing. A lot of government support went into development of the integrated circuit. There were very few commercial customers for Silicon Valley type products until the early 1970s. So most of what kept that industry going from the late 50s, when it was really founded, through the 60s, was government contracts, including specifically a lot of military and Department of Defense contracts. So. Everything you see about modern computers and the way computers are used came with not entirely from the military NASA effort, but definitely uh, driven on by that. And 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 you could say those um, that public federal effort acted as a catalyst to the development of that private industry and the internet itself. Yes, well, obviously the, the internet itself came from a DARPA-designed uh, computer network. Um, a lot of software you can trace back to, to, to government programs. Modern aviation that's supported by the development of the jet engine, which was a, a very big federal government program, also one they got from the, from the British, uh, by the way. A and pharmaceuticals. Most of modern pharmaceuticals came out of publicly financed research. And over time, as the National Institutes of Health has, have developed, that has actually continued and, and, and expanded. That's the one piece of our um, civilian-oriented research apparatus that remains relatively strong, although we, we actually think it could uh, reasonably be scaled up. To bounce back just a little bit in time, you talk about a project called the Tennessee Valley Authority uh, Project, New Deal era, but that's, again, an example you cite of this massive federal investment of dollars into a particular region or to take on a particular challenge. Talk a little bit about what that best exemplifies, the TVA. Well, the, we, the reason we bring that up is to, is to point out to people that the, the federal government has, from time to time in our past, taken on regional economic priorities. Mm -hmm. So the, the TVA was not – was there was supposed to be a number of these, but the TVA turned out to be the by far the most prominent, the biggest investment. They were actually trying to um, re encourage economic development, allow manufacturing to reach what were then relatively remote places, particularly through electrification. And so – damming the river was a way in which you could generate hydropower and generate electricity mm -hmm. and, and bring people onto the grid, uh, literally. So that was um, 
an example, a little bit of an isolated example, mm-hmm. I, I think, from, from that time period. Uh, there was, you know, reluctance. There's always been reluctance for the federal government to take too decisive a lead, and that was definitely the, the era of the 1930s. But it, it, it nevertheless serves as, as a reminder that historically the federal government has played some um, role in terms of regional economic development. And what's been the evolution in the relationship between scientists and elected officials, politicians? Well, initially they had a very good relationship, and that came out of World War II. The, the elected officials looked at the scientists for, for guidance and for leadership, for example, with regards to the space program and, and the response to the, to the Soviet Union. However, during the 1960s, this relationship became more complicated, partly because of the Vietnam War, partly because the politicians wanted some high-visibility, prestigious projects. Um, they felt they would be prestigious, like um, supersonic aircraft that would fly over land. The mm-hmm. scientists said, that's a bad idea. It's far too noisy. And then the scientists testified against it to Congress. Well, you can imagine the reaction of the White House was not enthusiastic about that. And that's under Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon. So it's a bipartisan political response. And of course, from the early 1970s, we really had um, a series of pressures on the budget, both because people don't want to pay taxes and because there were pressure for great society type social programs. And domestic discretionary spending, of which support for research and development would be a leading example, has been squeezed over the subsequent decades. And what happened to trust in scientists in this country? The trust in scientists has been eroded, without, without question. And, Why? And, Why? And, well, I think you can trace it back. We trace it back at least to Rachel Carson in the 1960s. Rachel Carson wrote this, the brilliant pieces, including uh, her, her most well-known book, Silent Spring, pointing out that pesticides had been overused and that the chemical industry, with the Department of Agriculture, had ignored side effects such as the impact on insects, on birds, and and potential, this is still argued about, potential impact on humans of putting a lot of pesticides into the into the food chain. And the pesticide story was one where at one point the scientists were lauded, held in admiration for seeming to have solved an amazing technical problem, which is keeping the bugs away from certain things. And in other words, at one time, the pesticide industry was in a very positive light. Absolutely. So yeah. raising agricultural yields, um, increasing the amount of grain you could get from from an acre of land, that this was a, a big issue people had grappled with for hundreds of years. Here was a breakthrough applying science, or a series of breakthroughs applying science. Um, and, and it was an analogy, of course, to pharmaceuticals saving lives and vaccines saving lives. But it turns out there are unintended consequences. And it turns out, I, th- I think in retrospect, it's fair to say that technology wasn't always developed and used in a framework that was sensible, responsible, with sufficient transparency. And, and growing... Was it, was it used dishonestly? In other words, were the scientists ever covering their tracks on these things? Well, I think that's a very difficult and, 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 mm-hmm. and deep question. Uh, I'm not sure we have uh, definite evidence on that, but some people would, would argue strongly that, that we do. There was ov- obviously also a lot of concern about the development of the civilian nuclear power industry, mm-hmm. where at least we can say that promises were made that were unrealistic and not subsequently kept. People who followed this carefully, of course, have also argued that perhaps in the 1960s and definitely in the 1970s, and also in the 1980s, if we look at the Soviet uh, nuclear uh, program, there was a series of mishaps, accidents, mismanagement at nuclear power stations that uh, really made people feel that the the science, and, and I would say the way the science was being used, so it's not just about the scientists, it's the interface between science and, and scientific knowledge and application. So that's about government rules, that's about 
company practices. That's about individual decisions that are made in operating these power stations. There was a there has been a breakdown in trust, and not only in the United States but also in, in other places with regards to nuclear power since that series of experiences. So what you tell what you're telling us now, and what your book tells us is the story of the image of the scientist going from sort of. Um, in the shadows to being very prominent, very respected, very looked up to, second only to Supreme Court justices, uh, as on on the scale of of most admired professions in the United States, to a period of erosion of that trust, and along with that, um, a loss of the funding that the federal government was putting into these various kinds of projects, which brings us to today. What would you say today is the state of the level of trust in science, scientists, expertise in general, and the impulse to pour federal funding into basic and developmental research? Well, I think that's a very, very interesting question. When we travel around the country talking about the book and talking with people who are running communities and looking for ways to build jobs, like in in Rochester, New York, for example, or or Cleveland, Ohio, or in in Chicago, there's a lot of belief that science is the future and that science unlocks opportunities and that science creates jobs. So at the local level, at the level of the science that builds companies, I, I don't find a lot of disagreement. However, when you come to the national level, when you go to Congress and you talk about funding, you talk about what's going to be in the budget and what the priorities are, there's no question that there's, there's a great deal of disagreement, both about the overall level of funding. So how much should it be? It was 2% of GDP, federal support for research and development in the mid-1960s. Now it's below 0.7% of GDP, so that's a big erosion of support. But there's also obviously a lot of disagreement about what should be funded. There might be agreement on National Institutes of Health and, for example, trying to find a cure for Alzheimer's. Perhaps there is agreement on that. But on most other elements, line items, there are big, intense fights about, is this important? Does this really help the country? Should we be funding this or increasing the funding for it? So one more visit to the past. I just want to quote something you say from the book. Publicly funded investment in research and development is the only approach that could potentially return us to the days when technology-led growth lifted all boats. Did those days ever really exist when technology was lifting all boats? Can you make that case? Certainly in in the um, 15 or 20 years after the end of World War II, uh, when the U.S. was had a, a remarkable degree of technological leadership relative to the rest of the world, we created new industries. Those industries had a lot of different kinds of jobs. Many of those jobs were for well-educated people, but many of those jobs, more of the jobs, were for people who had only finished high school and had some sort of vocational training. So people talk about the golden age of manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Yes, to some degree that's true, that there was a lot of there was more manufacturing as a percent of our economy and percent of our employment back then. But a lot of that manufacturing came from breakthrough technologies and innovation led by the private sector, but spurred on by this basis, by this catalyst that the federal government was providing. So I I think as as a statement about the post-World War II economy, it's correct that that we had a broader-based, more middle-class involved economic miracle than anything we'd experienced before. Or after. And yet you do say in the book that as a, as a percentage of GDP, more money goes into, tech, into technological research and development today, I think, than any time since we've been at war. But the thing is that most of it's not public money. Most of it's private money. Do I have that correct? That's right. So from the from the mid 1960s, the public commitment to research and development has dwindled. Mm-hmm. It's not zero, but it's dwindled. Private commitment to research and development has gone up. So if you look at total uh, research development relative to our GDP, relative to the size of our economy, it's about the same today as it was in the early 1970s. It goes up and down a bit, uh-huh. but it hasn't created. So why aren't all the boats being lifted? 
Well, what has is, what is happened, of course, is that this private research and development is, is very oriented, toward, oriented towards the short term. It's oriented more towards labor-saving types of innovation. It, it doesn't create new industries in the same way as they were created back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. So we've got good at displacing middle-class jobs, and this is various forms of automation have done this, and that, of course, comes from innovation. We have not so good about creating new middle-class jobs. So we have plenty of jobs in this country, but we don't have that many good jobs. And a lot of people who had a middle-class job paying, in today's money, $30, $40, $50 an hour with benefits, now find themselves working minimum wage or close to minimum wage jobs in retail or fast food. And that's not an isolated story in a few communities. That's a story across many parts of the country, and and even, I would say, most cities and urban areas face some form of pressure like that right now. Are you ultimately talking about income inequality? So income inequality, without question, is one manifestation uh, of of exactly this, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a particular kind of income inequality. So income inequality comes in various types. It could just be that the richest people are getting richer, the poorest people could be getting poorer, yes, (laughs) there's some of that too, but the middle getting squeezed and and losing uh, these middle class jobs over a period of decades, that has been a key characteristic of the widening income inequality. And the the widening of of opportunity, some people have great opportunities, some people have very little opportunity today in America. So what's your argument that now we need, again, publicly funded technology-led development in order to lift all boats? Why why not? I mean, you've just mentioned a little bit about why Silicon Valley is more focused on short-term things and fixing, I think, as you put it, matters of convenience to make life more convenient as opposed to great, big, deep, broad technological development. But what what would be a sort of great, big, deep, broad technological development that, number one, would require money at the level that the federal government could put in, and number two, would pay off in that way? So I think it's a great question, and you're looking for big potential home runs like the Human Genome Project. Mm -hmm. Human Genome Project was turned down by the private sector in the 1980s. The the private sector turned down the genome project? Right, and the amount of capital that people wanted to start, that was in the order of tens of millions of dollars. It was eventually backed by the federal government. No, but I just want to understand, why did they turn it down? I mean, now it looks like a no-brainer that you go into the genome, look at all you can discover there, look at all the money you can make ultimately with the the pharmaceuticals that could come out of that, technological devices, etc. Why, back in the 70s, would private industry turn down the opportunity to investigate that? Right. So what was needed was some investment in basic knowledge mm-hmm. um, and basic science. And the point made by investors when this was presented to them was, okay, great idea, but how do we, the private investors, get a return? You're creating general knowledge. There's going to be a lot of spillover. So you create ideas and you share those ideas with your colleagues. Very hard for at that moment for an individual company to acquire and appropriate that human capital. So there's a basis of knowledge that the private industry and, and private venture capitalists were not willing to finance the acquisition. So in other words, if they're not going to make a profit, obviously, immediately, not necessarily immediately, but inevitably and definitely, private industry does not want to do the research. Right. But, but they're happy to do the follow-on work. So once the basic science was done, funded by the federal government to the tune of about $3 billion over 13 years... Mm-hmm. Then private industry is happy to come in because then they can see the applications. Right. And now we have an industry that's mostly private sector people mm-hmm. uh, em- employing 270000 at good jobs, average wage of $70,000. Those, those are well-paying jobs and paying $6 billion a year in taxes. So that's the kind of home run that you're looking for in this space. So in the case of the genome, that I, I know that we know that that ultimately became a federally funded project as well as Solera, the company that was doing it uh, at hyperspeed uh, on the side, borrowing information and material and knowledge from the federally funded project. But 
how, how did the federal government ultimately get into the Genome Project if, in fact, it was not going to pay off immediately and if, in fact, private industry didn't see any reason for getting in? Well, this was funded through the National Institutes of Health, mm-hmm. and, and it was scientists who persuaded the politicians in this instance that it was worth a good bet. It was worth a bet. Was and it a hard sell? It was a bit of a struggle, but mm-hmm. it wasn't perhaps the hardest sell because it's still about saving lives and improving human health, which is a, a, a pretty straightforward narrative uh, on Capitol Hill even these days. What other potential big target projects do you see that the federal public money should get into to generate this kind of boat lifting effect? Well, I I think there's many. And I think for a country like the United States, uh, you should take on as many ideas as as seem plausible and that have this kind of home run potential. There's the development of synthetic biology. There's the exploration of the the, uh, oceans. There's hydrogen power. uh, There's development of photonics, for example. There's various uh, advances in new materials. A different, newer, safer approach to nuclear power is also something that some people want to put on the table. And, of course, there's the entire green energy agenda, which ranges from building a better windmill to um, tapping into the heat generated by the the Earth's core itself. That is a very big agenda. Many countries couldn't possibly imagine taking on even a fraction of that. The United States, we could do it all. So to summarize kind of the points of the advantages of having public, public funding of these massive projects, just count them off what they would be. So yeah, the, the scale of the money, obviously, you can put a lot of money into it. Federal government is the only one who has that kind of money. Right. So it's a state and local government gets this, and, uh-huh. and this is not a hard sell. And you know, if you if you if you look at what um, state of New York is doing, for example, trying to develop it northern part of the state, they very much have a, a set of priorities that are consistent with what we're arguing in the book. But they don't have enough money. They can't move. The, they can't move the needle. And we're talking about macroeconomic issues here in terms of the. Um, pressure on the middle class, widening inequality, the loss of opportunity in many parts of the country. So you need the federal government in order to move the needle there. And you need government of some kind, government with deep enough resources, to focus on generating new scientific knowledge that has these spillover effects. You see, exactly what the the disadvantage for the private sector, oh, you can't appropriate this knowledge, it's going to spread widely, lots of people are going to know how to do things better. That's what the federal government wants. That's the goal of this kind of government push. Mm Um, and then finding ways to encourage people, and I, w- I wouldn't o- want to overplay the role of the federal government in this, but encouraging people to develop commercial applications and to build those products that come out of this in places close to where the innovation takes place. So Rochester, which was very strong in optics in the past, now makes a, a big push on photonics, so the use of light for various o- optical purposes, and reading and, and interpreting um, all the signals you get from light as well, so all the information processing. Mm-hmm. And then why not build that technology in and around Rochester or upstate New York, being close to the, the innovation hubs? That, that's exactly the kind of vision that, that, that we recommend more broadly. Well, you just asked the key question, why not? Why not? Why isn't it happening? Well, perhaps it will. Okay. And, and so we're, Now that the idea is out there. Well, look, I, I, we didn't invent this idea. Other people have had versions of it. We're, we're standing on the shoulders of some giants in, in, in this space, as you can imagine. Um, I, I think we've been through a, a, a relatively uh, pessimistic phase. Uh, America, in, in, in 1940, found itself taken by surprise and, and responded with extraordinary efforts that 
met with remarkable success. And the same thing was true in the 1950s and in the 1960s. We're now celebrating the anniversary, 50th anniversary, of course, of, of Apollo 11, which is a, a mind-boggling achievement. Huge risks involved in, in that enterprise. And, and we pulled it off. We have retreated from that We pulled that it view. off, but then we called it off. I mean, NASA shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. What happened? Right. Well, that, this is the problem of the, 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 the pluses and minuses of having a, a simple target. Like, we will land somebody on the moon and they will have a walk around for a while. Okay, so that turns out to be a really good way to focus your efforts. But once you've achieved it, what next? Mm-hmm. Mars is a little bit too far away to be back then a feasible target and probably even, even today. So the idea that there was science for the sake of a particular kind of technological achievement, our point is science to strengthen, create more good jobs in America and to strengthen our competitive position relative to our global friends and allies who are also investing very hard in breakthrough technologies and trying to get ahead of us in terms of creating the jobs of the future. We'll hear economist Simon Johnson lay out his plans for science-based growth in just a minute. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm John Donvan, and this is a special episode of the Discourse Disruptor series presented by Intelligence Squared U.S. Instead of a debate, we're having a conversation, my conversation, with economist Simon Johnson, who draws a straight line from investment in science to the migration of jobs to tech hubs to America's dysfunctional discourse. And he suggests a plan for the future. So, so right now, at this moment in America, we have uh, six big innovation hubs, three on the West Coast, Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, three on the East Coast, Boston, New York City, and the greater Washington, D.C. area. And, and these places are doing well in terms of attracting people, in terms of building new products and services, coming up with ideas. By some measure, we've never been more innovative than we are today, at, at least in those clusters. But many people are on the outside looking in. They can't get jobs in those spaces. They don't see um, related jobs like manufacturing being created in their communities. Mm-hmm. And our point is that if you're going to scale up the overall research and development enterprise in this country, which will be a good idea for many reasons, including more economic growth, dealing with important problems, generating more good jobs, don't put that money into those places that are already doing well, in part because they're very expensive places to do business. And there's tremendous problems of congestion in New York City or in Silicon Valley, for or example. Or housing costs for workers. And absolutely, the housing costs are such that middle-class people are increasingly moving away from mm-hmm. those big cities, actually, because it's too expensive for them to live there. So our point is that there are many other places around the country that are have the potential to be strong technology hubs. Now, one of our criteria is you should have enough educated people, college-educated people. Mm-hmm. But this is not an idea that is just about helping college-educated people. It's recognizing that those people play a role in the innovation hub development process and the opportunities can be spread more broadly in those geographic regions. Now, realistically, we're not saying 100% of Americans would necessarily get immediately pulled into this. But if you look at where the hubs are that we're, we've identified using very simple, transparent criteria, it's 36 states, 80 million Americans live in these places. There are some big cities on, on our list, including Chicago, for example, but there's lots of medium and smaller places that seem like they have really good potential to pick up some niche in this 
broader technological development framework. What's a Midwestern example of that? So Cleveland, Ohio, or Detroit, Michigan. Actually. Detroit, let's take We that. were also in Detroit recently talking mm-hmm. to the Detroit Economic Club, where there was a lot of interest in... in, in and Detroit positive. used to be one of those places. So Detroit it, it arguably has fallen the most. Of, of, of all the tech hubs that we had in previous generations, um, because of what happened to the auto industry and, and because of what happened in, in Detroit, Detroit has come down a long way and has obviously lost a lot of jobs and a lot of population. But in and around Detroit, you have great potential for response um, for, for responding. Ann Arbor, for example, is which is very close to Detroit, is a center for the development of autonomous vehicles. Mm-hmm. Now, autonomous vehicles is a very applied form of technology, and the private sector is investing heavily in that. But we, we still think there's potential dimensions which the federal government could, could get involved. Well, talk about that. What would the federal government's money go to? What sort of volume of money are you talking about to, 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 to be relevant in Detroit in the way that you're talking about? So, in general, for the development of these hubs, it does depend on the scale of the place, but we, we, we recommend spending several billion dollars over, over a period of years, building up uh, physical infrastructure, uh, developing uh, labs along with universities, scaling up and strengthening universities in some places may be appropriate, perhaps in Detroit, mm-hmm. although perhaps in Detroit the key issue is linking Detroit with other parts of Michigan, which already have strong universities such as the University of Michigan mm-hmm. in Alba, which by any measure is already one of the World world's, mm-hmm. absolutely one mm-hmm. of the world's best technical universities. Mm-hmm. It's right outside Detroit. So I don't, I think we, John and I, are trying to be modest about our ability to design exactly what's needed in individual local communities. Mm-hmm. We think local people should do that. We're trying to talk about the general overall program design, and we'd like the federal government to actually run a competition where people put forward their own ideas about the kind of investments they would make in their local communities that would match what the federal government does. So make it into not a a race for the bottom tax break competition, which is what private industry usually wants. Make it into a win-win race to the top. You invest, we invest competition. Idaho is one of the locations you mentioned. And I was surprised at that. Just I'm thinking in, primarily in terms of population, because one of your criteria was enough people in a place. Uh, and I don't think of it as a heavily populated state. Talk to me about the case for Idaho. So, I, honestly, the, the, the uh, lack of population, the less concentrated population in the western part of the country does give us fewer places. But there are some uh, university towns that have sufficient population, that have um, some um, Good undergraduate science programs, mm-hmm. for example, and and we're uh, you know we, our criteria are fairly transparent. We've built an interactive website where people can play with those criteria and see what happens if if you adjust them a little bit. But we we do have some um, potential candidates: uh, Idaho, Utah, uh, e- even some potential we see out in um, Montana, for example. So, are you looking for places that already have world class universities, or are you talking about building up the universities, or or both? I think building up the universities is, is, is a good way to think about. It. Now, if you already have a very strong university, such as Ann Arbor, Michigan, then maybe it's just about recognizing yeah. and, and drawing, building on what you've already got. But other universities, I, I think, would benefit from and, and, and would make good use of additional funding. Thinking about how to uh, link that funding with their connections to the private industry. Arizona State University is, is, is a university that's held out as a very good example of, mm-hmm. in terms of what has been done, what the university has done by itself, building on that kind of effort and uh, model. University of Central Florida is another good example. And from the beginning of your story, MIT is a university that was transformed by the investment that the federal government made in research going on there. Now, it was already an elite university, but it became supercharged as a result of... MIT was a good engineering school that yeah. became a top science and engineering and technology place to study in the, in the world. And, and so I think transformation is, is not too strong a word to use. I want to talk a little bit about Seattle for as a case in point. Um, okay, Seattle has Boeing. 
lot of federal money supported Boeing over the years or went into contracts to Boeing over the years. But Seattle is really now, I would say, more known for Amazon and more known for Microsoft. And the, would you argue that those companies represent any kind of investment by the federal government? No, no. I think Seattle is an example of, of what you can get with the private sector technology industry developing and, and moving around around the country. When Microsoft, uh, the Microsoft founders moved their business, which initially was in Albuquerque, they moved it uh, to Seattle. There was actually a sign at the airport that said, well, the last person leaving Seattle, please turn out the lights. It was not going very well. And, mm -hmm. and because of those private um, in investments, Seattle has become something of a tech hub. It's a very crowded tech hub. It's a very expensive yeah. tech hub. But it does show you that technology can change communities and, and can but, develop. But, it, but does it not also make the case that private investment can do what you're saying federal money needs to be involved in to do? Yes, private investment can uh, do this and has done uh -huh. it. Silicon Valley is a private uh, investment story primarily, although there was, there was a government piece early on in the semiconductor industry development. Our point is if you let the private industry, if you just run this private model going forward, what you will get is a few mega big tech hubs. Where does the talent want to go now? Where do people, where do young, smart, highly educated people want to go? Where do they want to build companies? Where's the venture capital? It's all in those mega hubs. So Seattle got lucky. They got in early and all credit to them. But today you're not seeing 20 other tech hubs develop in other parts of the country. Mm -hmm. You're seeing the tech talent get pulled predominantly towards the West Coast and the East Coast and to a few places on the West Coast, East Coast. So your point that I raised a couple of times now that this kind of investment can help heal some of the rifts in society really basically comes down to, to raising everybody's boats and reducing the difference between haves and have-nots, uh, which is one of the things that's exa exacerbating the, the cultural divides in the country. It's, it's that direct. Yes, and it's about opportunity. So it, it's about uh, people who don't have very much now feeling that there isn't much opportunity for them or their children in their community. And you know what? Unfortunately, in, in many parts of the country, they're right. Those opportunities have, have, have disappeared for them. But has that not turned people off to the whole notion of science, perhaps out of resentment, perhaps out of mistrust? Um, I, you know, we do a lot of debates where we bring scientists onto the stage. Occasionally, we have a scientist arguing on one side, and there's somebody on the other side who's not a scientist. And so it becomes a scientific argument versus sometimes an emotional argument or a narrative argument. Interestingly enough, the side that's bringing the science usually wins. The presentation of data tends to be very, very persuasive with our audiences. Um, but d does that surprise you that the, that audiences would be open to hearing? And, and folks, you know, in general are not that scientifically literate. And yet in front of our audiences, uh, in front of on our stage, these scientists presenting to these audiences are actually able to win by making scientific arguments? Well, we still live, obviously, in a post-Enlightenment age, and, and people are very accustomed to rational arguments based on data. And if you get down to the micro level, they are inclined to side with a person who has a, a clear, persuasive presentation of the, of the data and, and of mm -hmm. the underlying science. But at the same time, if you can get them uh, worked up enough emotionally, and if you can introduce bad science or, or sort of signal jamming with regard to the good science, mm -hmm. people will, unfortunately, uh, today, in, in many countries, not only in the United States, uh, sometimes turn away from the scientists. I mean, it's a challenge we have also that sometimes audiences perceive the science as being politically motivated. The, the, the classic example, and it happens on our stage a lot, somebody will come up on stage, will present a, a study, the opponent will say, well, that study was funded by such and such industry, it cannot be trusted. First of all, I don't think that that's necessarily the case, but to me what it signals is the notion that 
science is science can get political and to the to your argument that science helps clarify what the truth is can you can you help, help us struggle with that i mean how, when we have on stage dueling studies from one side and the other how does an audience sort that out well that's a that's a very tough one and and i do think that uh, disclosing fully potential conflicts of interest, including source of funding, is incredibly important because we've had so many demonstrations of mm-hmm. instances where either industry lied or, 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 or didn't uh, report accurately the science that they knew to be true, or you had scientists who were you know, literally on the payroll of, of, of companies um, pursuing particular interests and, and basically being better compensated if they found certain kinds of results. So, you know, I, I think... Unfortunately, the reality is you you do need to uh, dissect uh, down to this level of details. Uh, I'm a big believer in democracy and actually a very big believer in in American democracy. I think the advantage of having this big, open, highly argumentative, somewhat litigious society is we typically get to the bottom of things. It may take us a while and we may... You know, go through some detours. And yet it's ironic that towards the end of the book, you write about the fact that the country that's doing best to the world in terms of harnessing science behind big, big government investment and making ground headway in that is China. Talk about that. Talk about losing ground to China. Well, you're right. It, it is an irony and it is a worry that um, to the extent if it's all about applying a lot of money to some relatively well-defined problems, which is the thing you're asking for. And it's the thing that you're saying China's doing and we're not. Well, I, I think there's two elements to scientific breakthroughs. One is finding those new potential home run, home run ideas, which may be quite different from what you thought was the priority five or ten years ago. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a dimension the U.S. is still pretty good on because we've got a lot of creative people. But once you define the problem, so, for example, deploying artificial intelligence for the purposes of uh, homeland security, the Chinese have defined this as, as a top priority. They're putting a vast amount of resources, money, and people into it. And there's no question that they're developing facial recognition technology that's far ahead of what we have under development, perhaps, and definitely being deployed in the United States. Now, you know, you can take that in various ways. Maybe you say, we we don't want to go in that direction. Fine. But if this is a technology we think is going to have some broader applications, the Chinese are, are ahead of us on this dimension of artificial intelligence. And I think, you know, the experts who've looked at this feel that when it comes down to data and having mass amounts of data and cleaning up the data so you can use it, the Chinese have got some advantages also relative to both the private sector and the public sector in the U.S. That is unfortunately today's reality. What about the Chinese investment in its own universities? The Chinese have obviously very aggressively developed their own scientific talent and that's you know through university programs they're producing a lot of engineers and scientists they send them to get uh, state-of-the-art education around the world and then they entice them to come back um, it's a deliberate very smart economic development um, and national security program the best response for us I, I would argue is to do more of the same to do what we're good at to strengthen our education programs to mm-hmm. pull more talent into the higher education world, and to ensure that as we develop products and and services, we create jobs for all Americans. But at present, I think the book argues that China is taking the position that used to be ours in terms of being out front of this compared to the rest of the world. 
They are certainly challenging our technological leadership. Yeah. I, I would say that, that it's under threat. Uh, now, this is people have said this before. If you go back to the early 1990s, there was a belief that the U.S. had lost its technological leadership to Japan and to Europe, and, and clearly, we, in retrospect, we we hadn't. And, and we went through. We created a lot of technology since then. Not so many good jobs, but a lot of technology. I think the Chinese threat is different. The Chinese threat is bigger. It's a lot more people, and they have a, a long-term technology and good job creation strategy that we that's based on our playbook. <laughs> we wrote yeah. that playbook. Yeah. They've read the playbook and they're, and they're applying it somewhat deliberately. We have not discussed it, not even thought about it that much um, of late. And, and I think we are um, in danger of falling behind China and perhaps other people. So besides writing this book, besides having a conversation like this, how do you sound this alarm? I have a lot of conversations uh, with people, um, both um, in, in, in various communities and various cities uh, around the country, um, and with uh, national political leaders. So people who shape the agenda in Capitol Hill, people who would like to um, compete for the opportunity to run the White House. Again, a big, open, argumentative democracy needs ideas, wants ideas. Getting this idea into the political mix is an, an important part of what we what we try to do. You make the point in the book that one of the advantages of having the federal government as the main investor as opposed to private investors is that the, gov the government's not looking to make a profit not on the face of things. And that means that some projects can fail and it's not considered a disaster. It's considered a, something that was tried and failed, but it doesn't mean that the investor walks away from the whole business and gets out of it. And you, you bring up the example of Solyndra, which was uh, um, a, a company uh, working on sustainable energy from the sun that was um, a target of investment during the Obama administration. And it turned out to be a very problematic company. Its product didn't do what it was supposed to do. There was some chicanery in the leadership. Ultimately, the place went bust. And you say that's too bad because Solyndra, that company, should have been allowed to go bust without that failure discrediting the whole idea of the federal government investing in developing solar energy technology, but that that's kind of what's happened. It gave a bad name to everything. So talk a little bit about what I really found intriguing in this is your idea that it should be okay for some of these investments not to work out. Yeah, actually, I think this is the biggest problem with, with what we're proposing is our appetite or ability to sustain even relatively isolated instances of failure in the public effort. See, if you put your money with a venture capitalist and the venture capitalist, private venture capitalist said to you after 10 years, well, the good news, John, is I've only lost money on one out of 10 investments I made. I think your reaction should be, what do you mean only one out of 10? You didn't take enough risk. You're, mm -hmm. you know, I'm wanting, I want you to swing for the fences. And if you get if venture capitalist gets three out of 10 successes, that's extraordinary. Often they get one out of 10 big success and that pays for everything. When you come to the public sector, if you get 19 out of 20 successes and one failure, the newspaper articles, the investigations, the hoopla is all about the one failure. And I think that our political system's reaction to failure is actually a big problem. And, and it, I, I don't know how you deal with it except have this conversation and talk to people about what it means to develop new technology, what we did well in the past, the way we tolerated failure in the past, and the way we need to think about making sure we, we understand um, that our money, when our money is, is well used, obviously you want to be careful about fraud, waste, corruption. But at the same time, when you're swinging for the fences, when you're trying to hit home runs, you're going to get caught in the outfield. You're going to strike out sometimes. That's the reality of the technological development process. And we have to be very upfront and honest with people about that. 
Otherwise, there'll be backlash. You really did figure out the baseball metaphors. <laughs> Pretty good <laughs> can, for an immigrant. <laughs> I can also do this in cricket terms if that helps, but probably not for your, it's for not your, help for your for listeners. Our, our audience. Simon, I want to thank you so much for coming by and talking. And it strikes me that so much of what's in your book would be fantastic debatable issues for us. There's a lot. Some of it we have debated. We've debated solar energy and government subsidies, for example, all sorts of things. But um, there's a lot in your book that we can find food for thought and a menu of debate for in the future. But I really appreciate how you shared your insights on how what's going on in this whole quandary is actually affecting the way that we're talking to each other. So I, I want to thank you so much for, for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Um, this was an episode of Discourse Disruptors. And as I said at the beginning, this is an interview series presented by us, Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates, where I'm sitting down with leading thinkers who are shaping uh, American discourse today and talking to us about how we move beyond partisan talking points and divisions and get to the real issues and questions that Americans care about most. To hear more episodes of this series, including my interviews with former ACLU President Nadine Strassen and TED curator Chris Anderson, visit us at iq2us.org. And once you're there, you're also going to find our library of more than 160 at this point, Oxford-style debates. You can keep up to date with our series by subscribing to our mailing list. That's iq, the number two, us.org. The Discourse Disruptors interview series is brought to you by Intelligence Squared US. Our debates and special initiatives like this one are generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Leah Mathau is Chief Content Officer. Shea O'Mara, our Manager of Editorial Operations. Connor Kerfman is our Creative and Marketing Strategist. Aaron Dalton and Rob Christensen are the Radio Producers. Robert Rosencrantz is our Chairman, and I'm your host, John Donvan. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.